Welcome to Apollo's Muses, the COVID culture and cash series. Hi everybody, thank you so much for joining me for episode 7 of the COVID culture and cash series of podcasts. My name is David Burgess, I'm director of Apollo Fundraising and through this series I've been trying to share stories of how arts and culture fundraisers have been responding to the coronavirus pandemic and how they've been able to continue fundraising for their organisations during lockdown. Today's episode was recorded on the 1st of June, where here in England we've started to see some easing of the lockdown restrictions. Schools and nurseries started to reopen today, as did a number of other shops. And with this easing of lockdown, it certainly feels that organisations are starting to move from a panic mindset through to starting to think about what the future might look like. My guest today is Dr Andrew Higgins, who is Director of Development at the Imperial War Museums. I had the pleasure of working with Andrew uh, when we were both at Glyndebourne. I was the Trusts and Foundations Manager, and Andrew was Head of Development. Andrew spent most of his career fundraising for opera companies, but in February of this year made the move to Imperial War Museums. So I was really keen to hear how he'd been settling into his new role, how he had coped being a new manager coming into an organisation just ahead of the coronavirus pandemic and the steps he's taking to start planning for IWM's future. Hi everybody, welcome to episode 7 of the COVID Culture and Cash series of podcasts. Uh, I'm delighted to have Dr Andrew Higgins as my guest today. Uh, Andrew is Director of Development at the Imperial War Museum. Good morning Andrew, how are you? I'm great, how are you doing David? Yeah, very well, thank you, very well. I'm enjoying the sun, it's been been lovely the last couple of days, hasn't it? Yeah, it's streaming through my windows right now here in Brighton, so yes, it's looking like a lovely day. So do you want to tell us a bit about yourself for, for those that haven't had the pleasure of meeting you? Yeah, sure. Um, well, as you said, currently I am, I just, I started in February uh, as Director of Development at Imperial War Museums, which are five museums that are all kind of dedicated to telling the personal stories of war and conflict. So we have our museum in London at Lambeth Road. We have Churchill's War Rooms. We have the HMS Belfast, which is the only surviving warship from World War II. We have our air base in Duxford, where we do these amazing air shows. And then we have a museum in Manchester. And then before then, for the last 11 years, I was director of development at Glyndebourne Opera, um, which was very exciting. And before that, I was director of development and communications at English Touring Opera. And I've done fundraising for opera and cultural institutions on both sides of the Atlantic. As you can probably tell from my accent, I was not born here. Uh, I actually grew up in New York City. And out of college, I started working at New York City Opera and then San Francisco Opera, and then came here to work at English National Opera. Um, so except for a year at the Hackney Empire, which was quite an interesting experience, this is my first um, fundraising job out of opera, which is quite interesting and quite exciting. It's a new, it's a new journey for me. And I, my, my timing is impeccable because I started in February with this amazing team at Imperial War Museums. I had about a month and a half to get my feet under the desk. And then, of course, Armageddon hit. So, yeah, timing is everything. 
before we get into how you've dealt with that and approached that, yeah. do you want to tell us a little bit of what fundraising normally looks like or what fundraising is supposed to look like for IWM when we're not in the middle of a, a global pandemic? It's an interesting time. And actually, I was brought in because IWM really wants to transition from a fundraising model that is very much based on raising um, capital money for big ex- exhibitions. So we're, for example, we're just finishing up a, an amazing fundraising campaign that I had nothing to do with, uh, which was to raise money, about 30 million for our new Second World War and Holocaust galleries, which will be opening in autumn 2021 now, and which is an incredible kind of reconceptualization of the Second World War and the Holocaust. And a lot of that money was raised through trust and foundations and through also individual philanthropy. What we wanna do now is continue to do those types of campaigns on a slightly smaller scale, but we also wanna broaden our fundraising base by looking at a lot more campaigns around unrestricted fundings that are going right to IWM core's costs. And also looking at how we can create more pathways from our people who come to the museum or become our members to potential higher level giving. So that's what I was kind of brought in to look at basically and, and create a new fundraising strategy for the next five years. Has that focus on that longer term strategy had to be put on, on pause? I've got to say it's given me the opportunity. I mean, I did a lot of meetings before we went into lockdown with all the IWM stakeholders, with our brilliant board. And we have a wonderful chair, Matthew Westerman, who was very, very helpful and gave me lots of good advice as I came on board. Also meeting with other museums to kind of do a bit of a competitive audit and hear what was going on there. And then in lockdown, you know, I've been really working on that strategy, which is kind of weird because it's kind of, and I, I think a good fundraiser is always thinking ahead, you know, two, three, five years. So I'm thinking, okay, right now I know we need to get out of Armageddon, but we need to be working now on this strategy so it's ready to go. I love that McKinsey's five R's of this, you know, we're going from resilience to recovery, basically. So it's given me the opportunity to really work on that, kind of refine that, have more meetings and stuff like that. So when we're, when we're ready to go, we will have a plan. At the same time, we still have some more money to raise for the Second World War and Holocaust Gallery. So that's continuing and other projects as well. So it really is, it's kind of, it's a transitional phase. And in a way, not that I'm saying, you know, lemons, what's a good lemons into lemonade? It gave me the opportunity to kind of work on that strategy. And how big's the team? So right now, I've got about seven people on my team. We've got an amazing head of trust and foundations. Uh, We've got a great individual giving team, good corporate um, officer, um, and myself. We do want to expand that, especially on the individual giving side as well. So we're looking at that right now. So what has the rest of the team been working on during this lockdown phase? Uh, and have you had to, to furlough members of staff? We've done a bit of furloughing, um, but we have kept a good team together. So every morning I meet with my development team. They all have projects they're working on. I would say one of the key strands of projects right now is staying in touch with our donors, keeping our donors apprised of what's going on. I always say it's not just about fundraising in this period, it's about friend raising, it's about making sure we're empathetic, that we kind of understand what they're going through. And if someone's given us, you know, a considerable amount of money for the Second World War Holocaust, we keep them up to date on what's happening. So we've done several updates, um, talked to our curators about finding interesting things about the exhibit, 
On Friday, I just sent out a, a newsletter with some great clips of some of our archival film from the Second World War and Holocaust. Um, the other thing we've been really focusing on is how do we get that donate opportunity out there? Um, the IWM digital and marketing teams have been doing incredible work with smaller teams because of furloughing around getting digital content out there. So we have, for example, this 60 second curating that goes out where one of our curators will actually take an object and curate it online for 60 seconds. And how do you create a donate opportunity around that? It also helps get the message that IWM is a charity out there as well, which I think is so important. So my team's also been looking at how do we do that? So staying in touch, getting the donate message out there, I think have been two of the key themes there. And then working very closely with our board and trustees about getting their advice about when we can, because I, because I think we shouldn't take our foot off the pedal here. I think this is a time to do fundraising, but it has to be done in a very well planned and measured way with the understanding that not everyone's gonna be thinking about funding Imperial War Museum right now. Mm. So it's about keeping in touch and making sure people understand why we're, you know, why we do what we do, getting our messages out there. And that, that's really interesting in terms of building in those donate now options into the digital content, um, because on a separate podcast, I was sort of bemoaning the fact that I hadn't seen very much of that, so the National Theatre's been doing it. it. So in terms of the message you're, you're using, is it coronavirus focused or is it much more um, general than that, much more focused on, as you say, IWM as, as an organization that needs philanthropic support yeah. every year rather than just now? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the facts of life right now, the three venues that we make our revenue at are all closed. So we're losing about a million pounds in revenue, just straight revenue. And then that doesn't even count all the commercial stuff. Mm. It costs a lot of money to keep those exhibitions going. I mean, we are the guardians of these incredible collections of, you know, World War One, World War Two, everything. So we need people's support to make. So if people care about what we do about telling those personal stories. And this really came through on VE Day, for example. You know, we, we, we had planned this massive outdoor VE Day celebration. We were going to have all kinds of things going on, you know, and we had to pull all that back and do that online. So we had, we did these amazing soundscapes on our VE 75 page where you could go on and hear people's personal stories of what it was like to be at VE Day, you know, including Churchill speeches and stuff like that. We got over 150,000 people to come to the website for that. And so we looked at that as an opportunity to get our donate message out there, to get our charity message out there as well. So it was just looking for those opportunities. So the messaging has been very much about IWM and the importance of telling these personal stories of war and conflict. That's what we do. And in this world, now more than ever, we need to tell those stories basically. You know, because as, as the old adage says, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, as we see all over the place uh, in today's world. Um, and also the fact that we can't do it without support. So I, and, and, and also I think empathy, the fact that, you know, we've gone through things like this before, you know, when you think of the Second World War and stuff like that. And so looking at that as an opportunity as well to say to people, you know, we've gone through tough times before and we've gotten through them as a country, as a world, you know, so this is another time where this is happening. Yeah, I was going to ask, because obviously there have been quite a few comparisons, as 
you know, people comparing the situation we're in now to, to what it must have been like during the Blitz and, and, mm. and during war times. Do you think that's putting IWM sort of closer to the top of people's minds at this time? I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's putting people, uh, putting us to the top of their mind, but it is just, it's, it's including us maybe in that dialogue, basically. And again, it's about, you know, I think a lot about this is relevance too. you know, why is it important that people go to a museum and see these items and engage with these items. And, you know, we do so much work about what we, you know, getting survivors, getting eyewitness people to talk about what the experience is. So we do these crisis cafes when we're up and running, where we'll have someone from Yemen or Syria come and talk to people about what it's like to be in a wartime environment, you know, wartime environment. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the relevance of it. So when you hear, you know, it, it's one thing to read about VE Day. It's another thing to actually hear a clip of someone talking about what it was like to be in London on that day, to hear that voice from the past. So I think that helps us engage in that, in that whole dialogue, basically. Um, and we've had some amazing comments and feedback from people who are just think, you know, are so appreciative of us doing that, basically, of bringing history to life so that one can learn from it and everything. So it sounds like you haven't um, launched a sort of coronavirus specific campaign. Was that something you discussed at any point or were you always clear, no, actually we need to be looking slightly bigger picture than that? Yeah, and also I think, I think one of the problems, we did, we did discuss that, we have these wonderful um, governance boards and, and we talked about that on the brand and reputation governance board. I think there's a danger of appearing to capitalize on coronavirus by using, you know, the, the Second World War narrative as, you know, as a way to say, you know, here's another crisis, you need to help us. You know, I, I, and that's where I think empathy comes in as well. Understanding that this might not be the time that people are going to give us money. But it's, 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 again, fundraising is fundamentally about relationship building. You could see a name in, in a playbill or a book, but if you don't know who that person is, if you don't understand what makes them tick, it's highly unlikely you're gonna get money out of them. Mm. So it is about building a relationship. And part of that is about understanding what they're going through. And if they're going through you know, uncertainty and health problems and things like that, that's the last thing you wanna do is ask them for money. But at the same time, I think you could temper that with the idea that we need to get our messaging out there about why IWM is important, you know, why it is relevant. And it's interesting, some of the ALVA, you know, the Association of um, Leading Visitor Attractions reports have been saying that coming out of this, people will be more altruistic because they're realizing now what they haven't had. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're, if I have a passion for something and I haven't been able to engage in that passion in 70 plus days, I'm going to really value that when I come out of this, you know? So I think we're seeing that as, as well. You know, we have some amazing supporters of, of Duxford, for example, who love it because that's the base where Americans and British came together to fight the battle of Britain, you know? So there's a real love there basically. Mm. Um, so coming out of that, I think it did, but I think to be too opportunistic too early, I think would be dangerous. And when you've got lots of charities out there trying to raise money to keep people eating, the last thing you want to do is, hey, you know, support our museum, you know, so, so I think it, it's a balance and we did a lot of discussion around that. You mentioned obviously this is a, a good time for, for building relationships. 
How has how has that been as a new person coming and trying to pick up those relationships and develop those relationships when you've not been able to spend as much time face to face as you might like? Frustrating, because, <laughs> <laughs> um, because again, again, I, again, I think you know, and it takes it takes a while. I remember at Glyndebourne, uh, it took me a couple of years so I could walk into a room and know most of the people in that room and 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 kind of know what they're interested in and ha- have shared experiences with them. I don't have that right now. And I'm trying, you know, actually my first day at Imperial War Museum back in February, they were having an event at Churchill's War Room. So I did get to meet some of our amazing patrons, which was great. Um, and of course my plan was to just, you know, focus on building relationships and meeting people. I've done some of it online. Um, and as I said, we have an amazing um, foundation board and things like that. And, and we've had a couple of good meetings, but no, there's going to be a lot of catch up to be doing there, definitely. and. I plan to be at everything I can possibly be at to meet as many people as possible for IWM. And we've got an amazing schedule being planned. Um, and I will try to, you know, maximize that as much as possible because as you know, that's what it's about. It's about building relationships. And I guess a, a sort of similar point, obviously this, this would be the time you would be trying to get to know your team, really understands them, what motivates them and sort of building up that, that two-way trust and and mm. uh, and relationship there. How have you been able to to do that during this time? Well, I had some good time with them before, um, and we actually managed to do some good strategy sessions and you know all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I, you know, we we've been staying in touch every day basically, and I've gotten to know them quite well. It's a great team; they're really really good. And I've got to say that for the whole extended IWM team, I went. You know, opera is a very different structure from museums. Mm-hmm. And I spent the first couple of weeks in the job just trying to figure out how it all works. And then IWM has one of the most incredible intranets I've ever seen. It's all laid out. It was amazing. So I got to, and then I would meet the person. I said, okay, you're the collections and governance, blah, 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 you know? So I got to do all that and I got to know them and we've all been staying in touch online as well. Um, yeah, it would have been nice to have more FaceTime, you know, et cetera, but I felt like I've gotten to know them very well and, and uh, we've been doing some like, you know, Zoom catch-ups and things like that as well, offline and stuff. So yeah, they will come again. <laughs> yes. That's... Well, it's, it's always good to get the crises out of the way at the beginning of the, um, of the time. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm not taking it personally because when I started at Glyndebourne in 2008, we literally had the financial meltdown. You know, we were planning this big gala, I remember, and we had to completely push that back. And now in 2020, we have Armageddon, you know, so. <laughs> so what we're saying is for the sake of humanity, you're not allowed to change jobs ever again. <laughs> I'll never get another job again. <laughs> so you mentioned, you, obviously a big focus has been on the longer term strategy. And I'm, I'm guessing people in organizations are now starting to shift from that. Uh, you talked about it as resilience into recovery. So what are the kind of considerations you're taking into account when you're developing that strategy? Because obviously there are still a lot of unknowns and I think people are starting to think, well, how, how do we approach that? What are the things that have been going through your mind? I think the word I keep coming back to is agile. I think we're going to have to be very agile in terms of responding to the different strategies of the overall company, which may change as well. I mean, I think step one is getting people back into museums, you know, 
Uh, and there's a lot of work going on now at IWM about how we do that in a healthy way with social distancing and all that. So getting them back, I think, is going to be number one. And I think number two is going to be just looking at where the opportunities are. I mean, strategies are great and they're good. I always think of a strategy as a roadmap. You know, this is, this is where we are now. This is where we want to be. How are we going to get there, basically? Um, but along the way, I think a strategy needs to be flexible enough to, to respond. Uh, and, and this is a great example of that. I think the key, one of the key things I'm seeing is I think with museums, sometimes it's the metric is always number of visitors. And I think what this has shown us, though, is actually with all the digital stuff that's going on now, it's going to be how many people actually access your collections and how can we, we tried lots of different things and you can see national theaters doing something and we, how do we bring that together into something that really is going to create a new model for how we fundraise with digital because digital will not go away. I mean, the thing about this period is, I mean, we, we've gotten used to things now that I don't think are going to go away. You know, they're going to just become integrated into the new, the new normal as McKinsey calls it. Um, so how do we respond to that as fundraisers? I think that's going to be one. Um, and yeah, I think it's just going to be have to be, it's going to be very much about agile fundraising, being very responsive to the market. You know, I think there'll be, there will be less money. Knowing your narrative, I think is going to be key. You know, why should, I always, I always start from the point of view of why should people give money to me? You know, why should I give my heart earned money to you, you know? And then I think the other thing that's going to be key, which has already started to be seen as a trend in fundraising, is impact, you know, reporting on impact. And that's about how did your money make a difference? How did your money actually make this happen, you know? And I know at the last couple of um, years at Glenn, where we started um, doing impact studies, where we would actually go through each project and show how money, how that funding made a difference. And I think having those narratives are going to be very, very important because there will be less money. It will be more competitive and people are going to feel like, well, you know, if I give you my money, how is that actually going to make a difference? Do you think that's something the sector is good at at the moment? Or do you think that's somewhere where we're sort of really lagging behind? I think it, it needs improvement. And I think recognition is another key thing. Mm -hmm. um, that we need to do more work on. You know, we have these incredible philanthropists who give, you know, incredible amounts of money every year to the arts and cultural. How do we recognize that support? You know, how do we make those people, not only make those people feel special, but get it out to other people so they can see that as well. You know, it's like the old adage when Someone gives money, they want their name listed, not because they just want to see their name, but because they want other people to see their name, you know? How do we do that on a much bigger scale, I think is, a, is one for us to be really looking at, because certainly the way things are shifting, philanthropy is playing a bigger and bigger and bigger role uh, in fundraising. So how, and then I think the other thing is, how do we encourage younger philanthropists as well, you know? How do we get them involved and how do we encourage them? And I think a younger philanthropist is a slightly different model from an older philanthropist. So how do we get to understand what their motivations are? I think certainly from what I've seen, you know, people just don't want to write a check anymore. They mm -hmm. want to be involved. You know, they want, to, they want to see something happening. They want to take part sometimes in that happening. So how do we, how do we create opportunities around that? 
And in terms of that recognition and and getting more involved, it, is there a challenge there with with moving from a more sort of capital projects uh, based approach in, into a more sort of unrestricted ongoing cost? Because obviously very easy to slap someone's name on the side of a building. Uh, have you started to think about what that might look like? Yeah, I have. And I think one of the key things is how do we, how do we use our collections? Um, you know, we, we raise lots of money to build the exhibition sites and things like that. And then we have our, you know, a collection, an exhibition usually has about a 20 year life cycle. So how do we use our permanent collections in the museum world as an opportunity for support? Because every item sitting behind those glass, you know, those glasses need maintenance, it needs conserving, things like that. So how do we develop that? And how do we get, you know, IWM is telling the personal stories of war and conflict. So how do I get people interested in helping us tell those personal stories of war and conflict? So I think that's one on one area. The other area is I think getting a lot more um, strategic about how we, le we learn about who comes into our venues. Mm -hmm. How do we engage with them and how do we build those pathways to potential higher level giving? And the other area I'll say too is legacies. I think that's also an area that, um, you know, I think there's a lot more work to be done. And there are, you know, there are great uh, people out there um, like Richard Radcliffe and things like that who are banging the drug for legacies. And I so agree. I think that is such an important area, especially when you have a group of people who have gotten so much and have been so enriched by your venue, you know, to just have them, to, to have that conversation with them and say, it would be amazing if you can help secure the long-term future of that institution by leaving something in your will. You know, I think that that's such an important, mm. important element as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, legacies played a huge part when when we were both together at Glyndebourne, and I'm, I'm sure <laughs> still do. Yeah. So, is legacies a relatively new area then for IWM? Well, as with every institution, we do get legacies, mm. um, but. My, my feeling about this is how do we identify more of those people who are intending to give us legacies as well as acquire new ones so we can get to know them while they're still alive and celebrate that with them. So I think that's an area that we need to develop basically. As we did with Glyndeborn when we, we launched the, the John Christie Living Legacy Society. You know, and when I left there, we had over a hundred people who we wow. knew were leaving us legacies. And you know we were getting quite a, good amount of money every year from that and also we knew that there were people and we and some of them you know we didn't force them to say it but some people did tell us what they were leaving us you know so I think again that's good long-term planning basically. One of the areas we haven't really talked about is is corporates mm. so if if I get you to sort of look into your crystal ball not necessarily for IWM specifically but across the the sector and across the museum sector what changes, if anything, if any, do you think we're going to see from corporate supports? Well, clearly, I think in the short term, it's going to be quite tricky because you're going to have companies with a lot of lots of reduced resources and money. I still think there are opportunities. And I always think of corporates as partnerships. I, I don't I've stopped using sponsorship and things like that. Again, it, go, it goes back to a relationship, basically, you know. How do you build a relationship with a company that might involve some cash, but might also involve in-kind, it might involve resources, et cetera. I think there are still opportunities out there, but again, it's about having a clear understanding of how your assets 
can help that company achieve its business objectives. I always find like barreling into a meeting and telling a company all the things we can offer them without understanding what their business objectives are is key. And if those, and if you don't have the assets to help that business objective, why, why bother even pitching, you know? So I think it, it is tricky. I think we have to be a lot more clever. And the other thing I think is using our boards and trustees as resources to get into those meetings, I think is key as well. It will be very competitive. I think there's still opportunity out, out there, but we're gonna have to get a lot more clever about how we position ourselves and, and pitch to those types of sponsors. Mm. <laughs> well, because the, I mean, these businesses are gonna have business needs going forward. And in fact, some of those needs are gonna be greater than they were coming into to coronavirus. So definitely, still work to be done even if there might be perhaps less money on the table than there was before or, or increased competition yeah and, and, and i think arts and museums offer incredible platforms for promotion and brand alignment and things like that so absolutely um i just think it's being very upfront being very clever about understanding what those business objectives are now that's interesting because you mentioned brand alignment and Instantly, I thought actually that that must be that must be quite a tough sell, isn't it, for IWM? Because in terms of brand alignment with the overall topic, how how do you find that? How how do you position that brand brand alignment? Well, I think again, I go back to the mission of IWM, which is telling the personal stories of war and conflict. You know, and we, you know, we have incredible. We have our permanent exhibitions, which are on World War One, World War Two, etc. And we also do these incredible kind of um, other exhibitions like refugees, about the refugee going through all of history, basically. Um, so there's a real wide spectrum of the types of exhibitions we do at IWM. Yes, when you, I know when you go to IWM, you, you look and you see the V2 rocket and you see the tanks and you see that. And that is indeed one element of it because we are the Imperial War Museums, you know. But we are a, a body that, you know, tells personal stories of war and conflict. That's what we are. Um, so it's not all about just war, you know. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's Second World War and Holocaust brought to you by Lloyd's TSB. Yeah. Uh. yeah. But, but, you know, I mean, you think about the Holocaust, it's also about I, mean, I think what this exhibition is going to do is really um, reconceptualize how people think about the Holocaust and mm. everything as well. Uh, it, it's going to be fantastic. And we've got some incredible supporters for it. So, yeah, I think it, it, it's, it's that broader vision of what, I, what IWM is, basically. You know, we did this amazing um, exhibition um, about culture under attack which was looking at how culture is destroyed in totalitarian regimes and things like that. And we looked at Nazi Germany, but we also looked at Iraq and things like that. So we do lots and lots of different exhibitions. Do you think it takes a, a deeper level of trust for organizations coming to, to be sure that that brand alignment is going to be, as you say, that positive side rather than the immediate impression someone might get of seeing a brand next to yeah and i think that's part of the relationship that you build with a potential partner it's being very upfront and, and things like that absolutely yeah so i'm guessing as i said just now that people are starting to think of what should be in their longer term strategy as they start planning for the future so 
what tips or advice would you give to fundraising managers, fundraising leaders sitting down to, to write those strategies now? I think first and foremost, as we come out of lockdown and we get back into, we get into the recovery phase, I think it's making sure that you have, you know, really stayed close with your core donor base. I think that's key. Um, you know, keeping them apprised of what's going on. I think the other area is how, and I, I keep asking these questions, what is a donor event going to look like in this new environment? Um, if we think about social distancing and, and you know, PPE and all this kind of stuff. So we're, we're in a very good dialogue right now with our caterers at IWM about how you actually do those types of events. How is that all going to work? And then I think the other area is how a donor meeting is going to work, you know, if everyone's wearing masks, you know, so there's all that kind of, there's, there's a practical stuff. And then I think what I would do, what I've tried to do is like, what's short, what's medium, what's long-term? What can I, what can I accomplish now in the next six months or so? What's medium and what's long-term, you know, and work with your teams on developing that. And then again, I think it's being a very close dialogue with the company and the, the overall strategy, and then looking at where the fundraising opportunities mm. are. I think if there isn't an IWM's um, supporter event where everyone's wearing gas masks, I think that's... Um, <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd come to that event. <laughs> we can get them from our collections. Actually. That's it, you must have a, must have a few. We've got an amazing, in the World War One exhibition, we've got an amazing display of World War One gas masks. I wonder if the curators would allow us to use those. Probably not. <laughs> I mean, do you think people will move away from events, certainly in the in the short and medium term, both because of the practicalities of putting them on, but also those that nervousness from supporters of being in rooms with with people they don't know. I think I think the first step is to kind of get over this period where everyone, even today, you can see people are all kind of nervous about venturing out and things like that. Um, and I think, again, one of the main concerns I know of a lot of museums is just getting people back in the, in the venues, you know. Key to that is going to be assuring people that come to our museums that, you know, they are healthy, that we have done our work in terms of social distancing, hand sanitizer, all that kind of stuff. I think once that starts, then the idea, I, I think people are going to be starved to get together because we haven't been together for so long. Um, and yeah, you could do things on Zoom and all that, but it's not the same as being being live. So I think it, I, I mean, fingers crossed, I think it will all come back. Um, and when it does, people are really going to want to get together. Um, you know, so yeah, but I think first and foremost, we have to make sure that people feel confident that when they come back to our venues, that they will be healthy and self social distance. And we're doing lots of work on that right now. Well, fingers crossed it's not too long before you're able, able to get people back in. Yeah. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about the digital content that you, you think some of these things will stay the same on the other side of lockdown. Are there other things that you're looking at, either from a fundraising point of view or wider than that, that you, that you hope will stay the same? Positive changes that you've seen come out of this that you say, I really hope we keep with this long term? Yeah, well, I think I think all the digital work we've been doing has been fantastic, and it's a great way to get the IWM message out there. You know, we've been doing several pieces around homeschooling and stuff like that, and digital education. I think all that should should continue basically because you know 
we can only get so many people into each, each of our physical venues. And if this is a way of getting the IWM message out there, I think we should continue to do that, definitely. So the digital element will not go away. And this period has shown that you can really deliver some incredible digital content and engage people. And um, uh, Bernard Donahue, who's the uh, head of ALVA, said in a recent webinar I was part of, he said, you know, we've, you've got a lot of people now engaging with your venue and you don't know who they are because it's all digital. So, so I think one of the jobs of our institutions will be, how do we get to know who those people are? How do we create a relationship with them just like we would create a relationship with someone who walks in the gallery? So I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done there, definitely. Um, yeah, so I see, that as, I see that as a positive coming out of this, definitely. And also just how we communicate with each other. You know, um, this has shown that to have meetings and you know, potential meetings with donors in different countries and things like that, you don't necessarily have to be there now. You could do it on Zoom or Teams or something. You don't have to fly to Paris or Germany or something. Um, although I do like face-to-face -face meetings, but there you go. So yeah, I think that, that's been a, an interesting positive that's come out of all of this. On the digital front, uh, and we'll, we'll include a link to some of the IWM stuff on the uh, Apollo fundraising page for this. Uh, are there other digital things from other organizations you've seen that you think other people would like that they might not have come across? Um, I've got to say, actually, I'm, I've been very impressed with Glyndebourne. Uh, I know it's near, <laughs> near and dear to my heart, but I've been watching. The, they, so every Sunday they do a what's called Glyndebourne Open House, and they're showing a full opera. Uh, they show it on their website and they show it on YouTube and they have a donate button on there. And, and, and what I like about it is there's some really good messaging around their COVID appeal um, and it's getting out there. So I, I've been very impressed with that. I thought National Theater's campaign was very, very good. Um, the one that really blew me away was the Metropolitan Opera uh, did their gala online. And so they had literally, you know, Rene Fleming in Virginia and Jonas Kaufmann in Munich and all this. And they would just cut one to the other um, and they raised over a million dollars for it, you know, which was incredible. I just saw one this morning, which I, there's this wonderful thing called Reunited. And it's a, it's a group that, and it's connected to a charity um, with Cheerios that's helping to feed people and stuff. Um, and they just did a Reunited of the Lord of the Rings cast. And they all came on and, you know, on Zoom and everything. And you had, you know, Sean Astin and Orlando Bloom and Sir Ian McKellen and everything. Um, so it's interesting how people are using that idea of creating content that people really want to see. You know, and reunions is such a nostalgic thing, you know, to um, get people to watch it and then donate. And I think there's something interesting in there about that idea of, kind of playing that, using that nostalgia idea to reunite people who people want to see and then using that as a way to leverage a donation. Um, that, that's interesting. And again, doesn't have to go away after we're all out there again. No, like, well, I'm, I'm guessing particularly for your older donors, nostalgia has a, a key part to play in your, yeah. your fundraising message anyway. Andrew, thank you so much for that. Thank you for giving up your time and, and sharing your, your thoughts. And we wish you and the team all the very best for getting the doors open and developing and finalizing that, that longer-term strategy. 
Well, thank you, David. And thank you for doing this podcast because I found all the episodes really, really helpful. That was Dr. Andrew Higgins sharing how he's been working with the team at Imperial War Museums to craft their five-year fundraising strategy and starting to plan for life after coronavirus. As always, hugely grateful to Andrew for giving up his time and coming to talk to me today. Lots of food for thought there. I mean, I think it was really interesting, Andrew, talking about our need to keep one eye on the longer term. And I think with a lot of organisations sort of firefighting at the moment or over the last couple of months and really focusing on the short-term need, it's easy to lose sight of that future and what comes next. But the danger is if we don't have one eye on that, we'll just keep lurching from one short-term funding crisis into another one. So even though it is tricky, starting to think how the decisions we're making at the moment impacts the longer term and what we need to start putting in place to ensure that longer-term sustainability is going to ensure the longevity of our organisations. Andrew also talked about our need to be agile. Obviously, there's a huge amount we still don't know about the future, even in the the short and medium term, but we have to then be able to prepare for that. And obviously, Andrew talking about the need to build up unrestricted income as one way of dealing with that. And also alluding to the fact that organisations are probably going to have to make quicker decisions than they'd normally make. Uh, Plans are going to change at short notice, and fundraisers are going to need to be able to adapt and roll with those punches to be able to make sure that the work continues to go ahead. We talked about the fact that you need to be clear of what your offer is to supporters. And obviously Andrew mentioned that in relation to corporate partnerships, but I think that's true across all of the funding streams, and particularly when there's greater pressure, when there's more competition for funding, being really clear what is it we're we're offering. And I don't necessarily mean tangible benefits by that. It's that idea of understanding what needs you meet and why a supporter should care enough to make that donation and and to invest in your organisation. One of the things that really stood out was Andrew talking about the fact that they will probably increase the size of their individual giving team in order to deliver this strategy. And perhaps that might come as a shock to organisations who are looking at reducing the size of their teams and having to make staffing cuts. But fundraising takes work. We know it takes time, it takes effort, it takes skill. Given that there's going to be greater need, greater pressure on fundraising targets over the next couple of years, actually investing in that area could be what it takes to to get organisations through. Cutting those teams at this time could be a short-term gain, but actually one that leads to to longer-term pain. Previous episodes have focused on what organisations have been doing during coronavirus and during lockdown. And obviously this has been the first one that started to look to to the future and started to talk about how organisations are preparing for life after coronavirus. I'm still really keen to share as many examples as we can, both of of what your organisations have been doing over the last 10 weeks while we've been in lockdown. So if you've got a story to tell, please do get in touch. But also if you are starting to make plans for your organisations, I'd love to hear what you're considering, what your thoughts are and how you're going through that process with your organisations at this time. So please do get in touch. I'm also hoping to chat to people across the sector because a lot of these episodes so far have focused on individuals talking about their organisations. But I'm keen to try and get some uh, some broader perspectives of what's going on across the sector. 
I've got a few people in mind, we're going to try and get those lined up. But if there are topics that you'd particularly like to hear us discuss, or people you'd really like to hear from, please do get in touch, and I'll do my best to get them on. Finally, just before I wrap up for this episode, a couple of, um, I guess, sort of parish notices. Uh, firstly, if you found these podcasts useful, this is by no means the only thing out there, and there are a couple of other things you might find of interest. Uh, one of them is the Institute of Fundraising's Cultural Sector Network, who are planning a whole series of online events over the coming weeks. Uh, if you're not on the mailing list, I strongly recommend signing up to that. There's a LinkedIn group, and there's also uh, a Twitter account, at uh, IOF Culture. So check that out. They've got a range of topics coming up, and it's a great chance to chat and hear from fellow arts and culture fundraisers across the UK. Another really exciting one that's just been announced uh, this week is the fact that the team at Fundraising Everywhere have joined up with Dana Siegel and the team at the National Arts Fundraising School uh, to curate an online conference uh, that's going to look at the future of arts fundraising and where we go after COVID. Uh, it's going to take place online on the 18th of August. Uh, tickets uh, on the early birds are available for, I think it works out as about £65 at the moment. Uh, and for that, you get an absolutely incredible lineup of speakers. They've got speakers from all over the world. It's going to be a really fascinating day. So, absolutely recommend checking that out. And I'll put a link to that on the Apollo Fundraising page, uh, apollofundraising.com forward slash podcast. That's it for this episode. Thanks very much for listening. And huge thanks again to Dr. Andrew Higgins for sharing his thoughts and giving up his time today. And I look forward to bringing you another episode very, very soon. Mm-hmm.